coming up in this episode of Finding Common Ground. However, when I hear about the Tea Party and I think about the Gaston flag, I got all kind of thoughts, Bill. Somebody in this country is saying you are not first class citizens. Hey, hey, don't y'all white guys mess up the black guy reputation. I already got enough issues. Anyway, don't y'all mess up my rep now because I have street cred out there. There are two sides to every coin. How do we deal with racial issues when they affect relationships? Finding common ground on all those issues that we come against. There's black and there's white. And I think as Christians, we have to learn how to get together because we're not in heaven. I've met more interesting people just by God just bringing them in. Republicans and Democrats. But a lot of times when it comes to race and it comes to culture and it comes to perception, even as Christians, we don't always understand. We look at it through our lenses. There's Bill. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma. Uh, Any black the, people in Parma? There was not one. Not one black person, not Bill? Not one. Come not on, Bill, one. you got to have one, a nope. token black person, a token And there's Odell. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, public housing, single mom, divorced single mom with four kids, and I came up through segregation and all that kind of stuff. If a black person drove through the town, the police would stop and escort them out. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. A part of what we have to do is listen to each other, find the common ground, and question, not questioning you like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for a better understanding. Father God, we just come to you saying thank you for opportunity. As many of us deal with personal issues, along with trying to do public issues when we're hurting privately, we just say thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for the show and all the call-ins that we are receiving, the feedback to say, oh man, just so refreshing, and even the criticism that we receive. So we just thank you for that and we praise you. Amen. Amen. Dearly Father, just thank you for this day. Thank you for getting Odell's heat back on. I was worried about him becoming a black popsicle. Uh, Lord, uh, we lift up Bob. Uh, as he's here, our guest, and he has a great relationship with Odell, so I'm excited about this this relationship and to hear the, the conversation. Lord, you've blessed us so much. Uh, my daughter donated her kidney uh, on Tuesday, and she's back home already, just getting back to normal. So, and the recipients uh, received the kidney, and it's working very well. Lord, you've blessed us so much. Amen. Bill, a black popsicle. Let me let let. This is Black History Month. Let me fix that. Because I don't want my black friends to come for you, Bill. I don't want them to come for you. So what Bill is referring to, because we, we have audience all over the country. And how many different co countries, Bill? Uh, right now we're at 21. Our second highest used to be Italy. Now it's Germany. Well, wait till my, wait till my brothers and sisters from Africa discover the show. And you talk about black popsicle. But you know, it's interesting <laughs> what happened yesterday to the audience. I got a call yesterday, like everybody else. And the wife said, hey, downstairs the heat's not working. It's cold. So being Batman, you know, you have to stop everything because the wife is cold. So I called the HVAC guy I knew. He went over there within an hour and found out, hey, uh, what's happening is not an HVAC issue. It's an electrical issue. Do you have an electrician? So I tried to get the electrician. That didn't work. So got him scheduled for first thing in the morning. So we had to sleep upstairs because the unit upstairs was working, but the unit downstairs wasn't working. So the wife just called me back and said, hey, everything's fine. So Bill, a happy wife is a happy life. 
Amen. So that's Amen. the black popsicle thing. Okay. Well, I'm but, glad. But why we on blackness? Well, let, let me just say something, Bill. You know what? <laughs> me and you were on the national news and political and everything else, being the cameo in the background, because as the guests know, Congressman Walk Walker has been on the show two or three times. Uh, Congressman Ted Budd's been on. And Walker announced that he's going to continue the race for Senate, even though he's in third place. Well, you, you remember those people that you see anytime President Trump has anything, you have the black people in the back. It's almost like to the left. I don't know. They must put them in there. It might be these are the seats reserved for the black people who are going to say the white T-shirts, blacks for Trump and hold up the signs. Mm-hmm. So me and Bill were sitting in that position. So I'm sitting there, the black guy on camera uh, with Mark Walker. And it was just interesting because people started calling me even before I got home. Hey, I saw you on TV. Hey, I saw you on TV. Hey, I saw you this. So I remember I got an invitation once with some people. President Trump's were flying in town and they wanted, Odell, we need some people to go out there and greet him at the airport. And I said to myself, nah, nah, I'm not going to be that black guy on the national news <laughs> greeting President Trump. That's for sure. Um, and I was reading, Bill, and I read something on Tri-City Beat today, February the 2nd. So I'm just read that. And this was just interesting because they were talking about Mark Walker, but something I didn't know. And it says, there's very little ideological daylight between Walker and Bud, who both rose to prominence back in the Tea Party days. Walker as an assistant pastor at Lawndale Baptist Church, where the Guilford County Tea Party was formed. Now, I had no idea that the Tea Party was formed, Guilford County's Tea Party was formed at Lawndale Baptist Church. Nothing against Lawndale Baptist Church. They do a lot of good stuff. However, when I hear about the Tea Party and I think about the Gaston flag, I got all kinds of thoughts, Bill. So in lieu of all that, I have a question for you, my friend. Okay. And you know how people say, I'm asking for a friend? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not asking for a friend but I'm asking my white friend as a friend, Bill, how do white folks really feel about a black woman being nominated for the Supreme Court? That's interesting. You know, we had a, we, uh, the chief justice of North Carolina was uh, a black female. And uh, this backstory on that is uh, for 200 years, the tradition in North Carolina was that the senior member of the Supreme Court if the chief justice resigned or retired or something, uh, the, the senior member, whether it's Democrat or Republican, was promoted to chief justice. And uh, Governor Cooper, uh, Paul Newby, Justice Paul Newby was senior. And there was another white male senior uh, that was after Paul Newby. And then there was Sherry Beasley, who was black. And Governor Cooper jumped over both them and gave it to her to become Chief Justice, the Supreme Court. So I'm like, okay, did he put her in there because of her color? Or did did he put her in there because she was the best legal mind on the Supreme Court? And my viewpoint is what we need on the Supreme Court is not color, is not race, is not anything but the best legal minds in the world. And if she is the best legal mind in the world, I don't care what color she is, she should be on the Supreme Court. If he's just doing it for the fact of color, that that kind of bothers me. You know, when we diversified our Boy Scout board, I wanted to bring in people of color. And you and I, but I didn't want to bring in people of color just because I could say, okay, now I've got a certain percentage of color people on my board and hit that box. I wanted people that came on that would work, that would perform, as opposed to just relying on their 
the color of your skin. So my viewpoint is find the best qualified person. And now I do recognize the fact that sometimes people don't have the privilege of getting the education or getting the experiences and all that. So you have to kind of factor that in a little bit, but uh, to come out flatly and say, this is what we're going to do. sounds like he was repaying a political uh, favor. Okay. So do you think the majority, because you are a 72 year old white guy, Republican yeah. white guy. Yeah. Do you think the majority of not all, do you think that's kind of what, because again, I love you enough and know you enough that I could ask you this question as a friend. And a lot of our viewers would probably like, want, want me to ask the question. And a lot of viewers may want you to answer the question because in a lot of cases, when you do that and you said, and I agree with you, the best qualified, and we look at the Supreme Court right now, and my whole issue with President Obama, who I love, is that he never appointed a black female. When you look at it, we lost a... Uh, Thurgood Marshall for Clarence Thomas is almost like trading baseball cards. And I call foul because Clarence Thomas, in all honesty to him, he's not a Thurgood Marshall. But he's a black person. However, when you look at the Supreme Court on, it's not political, but it is political. And when you look at a black female, I look at it like this. Black women has caught the devil in this country from the fact of their babies being taken away from them and sold to build this country. They were bred to build and produce individuals who are gonna do labor to build America, okay? So now that's Odell's own thing now. And all those years of breeding and taking and selling and raping and abusing, but they can't judge. And then we went and Ronald Reagan, who I thought was a good president, when he, his presidential campaign in 1976, the whole welfare queen thing, I'm like, dog, can black women catch a break? And, you know, the whole thing on welfare queens and everything. And our guest today, a uh, good friend of mine, smartest guy in the room. So, Bill, I'm the best looking black guy in the room. You're the best looking white guy in the room. And Dr. Professor Bob Weinberg is the smartest guy in the room. So we're going to introduce Dr. Weinberg because we love him. Dr. Weinberg, help me out. Help me out on the whole welfare queen thing. What's your views on, you know, black women being nominated? Because yeah, Biden did say it. And Bill may be right. I don't see why he's wrong that it was a, a promise made, a campaign promise made. But the previous president did a whole lot of stuff. And Mitch McConnell, I'm still pissed at Mitch for holding back President Obama's our Supreme Court nominee, because I said Mitch is a gangster. Mitch did some stuff nobody did. Mitch held that position for how long? Eight months? And then pushed Trump's last one through in eight days? Help me, Dr. Weinberg, because I'm in trouble already. But like Bill said, we love trouble. Well, we had to introduce Dr. Weinberg, and you know, people are going to think that we're making this up, that there's just some guy sitting there. <laughs> there is just some guy. You know, just some guy we picked up off the street, and we're calling him Dr. Weinberg. Uh, Odell, you want to introduce him? He's, he's a, he's, you know his background better than I do. Yeah, Dr. Bob Weinberg, Robert J. Weinberg is a big shot. You know, he's a <laughs> Jefferson Pilot excellent professor of social work at UNCG. Uh, he was the director of community engaged scholars there with the School of Health and Human Services. He was the chairman of promotions and tenure. So he was the one who decided if you got that precious tenure or not. He was a social professor for the Department of Social Work, faculty senate, chairman of the Department of Social Work, 
But more importantly, Dr. Bob Weinberg is my mentor and my friend. He helped me years ago when I started this nonprofit entity and I asked God to send me some help. And God sent me a white, bald-headed, slightly bald, non-basketball playing Jewish professor that saved me. And together we built a $100 million organization, went to the White House, did all these things. So Dr. Weinberg, it's on you, my friend. Thank you. Uh, Bill, thanks for having me in your house. You're more than welcome. Appreciate it. And how was the play, uh, Reverend Lincoln? <laughs> the play was okay for a while. <laughs> uh, let, let's back up a little bit. Uh, first of all, where I come from, Utica, New York, anybody that uh, is black and slept in the cold would be a fudgical, not a black pop. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So you like Ronald Reagan. Did you like Lee Atwater? No, I, I liked Ronald Reagan because I thought Reagan would try to find common ground. I think in spite of everything Reagan did or didn't do, I thought that at least he came in from a business perspective. Now, the more I learned about him, the whole welfare queen things, I despised that. But yes, I did. I thought Ronald Reagan was a good president. Okay, well, that's beside the point. The welfare queen stuff was to solidify the white fence sitters and to alienate the, them against the black community. And it was done by his uh, henchman, Lee Atwater. And Atwater on his deathbed said that he was sorry that he did that because it was an entire scheme that has continued right through the bombings, the threatened bombings of the HBCUs yesterday and the day before. And if you don't know this history, which many people don't, uh, then, you know, you can come up with an incremental extemporaneous analysis about race in this country. But this is a long tradition of, uh, no offense, Bill and Odell, who have many Republican friends, which I would like to challenge them on. This has been a long history of um, race baiting because, they believe that their country is for white people only, except when you use the platitudes of the Constitution, all people are created equal and all that sort of stuff. But uh, the only place it's equal and it's not in the business offices, it's on the basketball courts. That's where talent, uh, nobody dares to sit the best player on the bench when it comes to sports. They'll, they'll throw out uh, a Colin Kaepernick because he takes a knee. Uh, talk about cancel culture. Um, using his First Amendment rights, but uh, that's for another story. So you can run a trend line through that sort of stuff, right? From Lee Atwater and the Welfare Queens and Willie Horton, uh, right straight through to Colin Kaepernick being an SOB, according to the former president. And um, yesterday's threatened bombing of HBCU. Somebody in this country is saying, you are not first-class citizens. You're referring to black people. You pick people like me, not Bill. Bill's a white Republican. You are a, uh, I, I've learned, you've taught me that Jewish people are not white. So I don't want to make that mistake because I made that mistake once. You said, Odell, I'm not white, I'm Jewish. Whoopi made that mistake too. And I said, I didn't want to talk about that. But uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're white. Look, you know, I know we're on radio here, but I'm as white as Bill is. Um, not as white as you are. <laughs> <laughs>
But uh, if you squint really good, you might get that. If I screw up. <laughs> Listen, I, I want to add something. Uh, I want to uh, get in here about uh, Colin uh, doing his knee. Uh, first off, I respect the fact that the First Amendment that he had a right to do that. Okay? I think he has a right to protest. The thing that I didn't like is the national anthem is honor of all the veterans that died so we could have freedom. And I have a bigger respect level for that uh, and not discarding that uh, because my, my uncles died in World War II defending our country. And uh, I had friends that died in Vietnam defending our country. But so I think Colin had the right thing to do. I, I agree with what he wanted to do. I wish he'd find another platform. And what happened by doing that platform, he alienated a lot of people. And I don't think that's what he wanted to do. I think he would, if he figured a different way to do it, and I don't know what it is, but a different platform. It'd be like if he said, well, I'm going to burn the American flag. And that's that's going to be okay. And I don't believe in that either. And I grew up in 68 when they did that. Uh, so that's my viewpoint on that. And you have a different one. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I'd like to hear it. The, the, vet, the same veterans that you talked about with the national anthem, uh, died for the right to vote, and yet there's people now suppressing the vote. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that, but that still doesn't give Colin the right to dishonor the national anthem. But that doesn't give the legislature. That's a print quote, quote. You know, he didn't do that just because he did it doesn't mean somebody else doesn't do You know, I can go through a whole list of things that people have done wrong in America, including me, okay? I probably broke a law to, to today going through a red light, Okay. But uh, I didn't do that. Can I do a citizen's arrest? (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Here we go. (laughs) Yes, you can, but I didn't do it. But, you know, but here's the beauty of our country. You and I can have a different viewpoint on this. And I love it. And, and, you know, like the, the, you know, what happens is when we start digging a little deeper into our thoughts and our viewpoints, that's when we get the rub. Right? Right. And, you kind of made an illusion that it's apples and oranges with Colin and the national anthem and me and the voting. Mm-hmm. But as a principle that you're violating something that's American, the principle is both with Colin and with taking away votes. Amen. I agree. So, you know, I want to see everybody hooting and hollering about taking away the vote not the way they hooted and hollered about some black guy who got on his knee. I see. I see where you're coming from. Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we had a guy, a fellow on here, Dr. Uh, do you remember his last name? Dr. Odell? Uh, I, I don't. I apologize. Yeah, I but he was, on, he, he was fantastic. And one of the things that he said was um, that we, had, we, not, we st- need to start getting prepared for the violence that's going to come from the next election because it's being set up and it never occurred to me that people would become violent when the election doesn't go their way and try and do what they did on January 6th. And I started thinking about that and I said, you know, he's probably right. There is going to be violence. And, and I don't agree with that either. I, I don't think that's a solution to it. Um, you know, the, the, it's real interesting. I have friends that think the election was stolen. I don't think so, but it's interesting. Justice Paul Newby won by 404 votes from Beasley after two or three counts out of millions of votes. All the other Supreme Court justices won by a large margin. That particular race 
was so tight. And I, I started asking, okay, why was that particular race so tight? I don't, I don't have the answer. Uh, but I did look at how the votes came in. When they came in uh, on the uh, ballots the, the day of the, the election, he won significantly. But then as the mail-in ballots started coming in, he started losing ground, losing ground, losing ground. And that's where it became, where the other Supreme Court justices won significantly on the ballot day, but they didn't get as many mail-in votes. And I thought, well, that's kind of odd. How did all those mail-in votes show up for just Justice Newby and Sherry Beasley's race and not for the rest of them? Because they're on the same ballot. So it just makes you intellectualize and say, was something weird happening there or was it just a coincidence? And I don't know the answer. It was a good ground game with the organizers for mail-in votes and advocating for the black candidate. Okay. And I, I think you're right because she was the only one on the ballot. Black female. Yeah, he's probably right. So Odell, he, he'd be the last to tell you, Bill, that he was the best basketball player at uh, not only University of South Carolina upstate, but uh, um, Guilford College geezer basketball. He was the best. And he'd come traipsing in late all the time. And, you know, I was one of those white guys that sat at the end of the bench just out there getting some exercise. And Odell would make friends with everybody, but, you know, good close to a year went by and he didn't, he didn't even blink at me. And then one day there was a, uh, an article about me or I'd written an op-ed on welfare reform and Odell was beginning to do his thesis and make the transition from business. And next thing you know, he's over on my side of the locker room next to my side of the bench. <laughs> and he said, I saw that article about you and welfare reform. And, and I said, man, he hasn't said hello to me for nine months. Who, who is this masked man all of a sudden? Was he good looking then? He'd never been really good. <laughs> <laughs> the man speaks the truth. Uh, in his mind, you know, oh, as yeah. long as you feel good, like you're good looking, you got self-esteem. He feels like he looks good. So, you know, I let him go with it, but. <laughs> See snow day at the beach. <laughs> uh, Bob, I love you, Bob. I love you. <laughs> so one thing led to another, you know, and I'm just like, he's out there playing basketball. And, you know, if I got a pass from him, if I was on his team, one thing, but there was no communication, zero. Now close your eyes, Bill. What do you see? Nothing. 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 That's, that was my relationship with Odell Cleveland until he saw something in the paper about me that he could latch on to. <laughs> and then he came over like, you know, and he, he is a salesman still, came over and started to sell himself and his idea about his thesis. And, and I'm sitting there, you know, I hadn't even taken my shower yet. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I got to listen to this <laughs> after basketball. And uh, one thing led to another. And I said, let's. You know, he said, can I take you to lunch? And uh, he took me to lunch. Was it the Chop House? Yes, Gate City Chop House. Gate City Chop House. Uh, I'm still sitting there, and he's still talking like he knows what he's talking about, like he's playing basketball. And my basketball court was the scholarship of 
the history of welfare and the service development and then the concrete evaluating those sorts of things. And I'm listening to him talk like he knows what he's talking about. And, and I'm, I'm getting uptight. Mm. And I said, damn, you know, just because he's good on the basketball court doesn't mean he's good anywhere else. My, <laughs> my daughter said to me one day when I fixed the computer, she, she said, how'd you do that? I said, I'm a PhD. And she stood up, put her hands on her hips and said, and only what you know. <laughs> Meaning you're as dumb as mud and everything else on the planet. <laughs> so she said it with love, right? <laughs> she did. She, she did what she meant. It. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And so, but then Odell started. She must have picked up on my body language because he started to talk about his mother and how he cared about women and children. And all of a sudden, I said, you know, this guy's got a heart. It might be blockaded up by a big ego because he's good in basketball, but um, he really has a heart. You know, what was it? The Wizard of Oz? If I only had a heart. Yeah. <laughs> Game of clock. So, Thank you for your compliments, Dr. Weinberg. Thank you for your compliments. Bill, Gate City Chop House was one of the best places. We went there. We were having Oyster Rockefellers. We were having uh, all this big time meal because that's how we do it in business. And Dr. Weinberg probably looked at me and like, mm, I don't know if I like that guy, but I'll be quiet and let him tell the story because he's probably more accurate than I am. No. So the dinner, the, the lunch came out over $200. I said, you know, they don't get a welfare check more than that each month. And I just wanted to, you know, if I had any guts, I would have said, I'm not eating there. We'll eat at Burger King, you know, save the money. But um, so all of a sudden, the connection about, oh, four, $225 a month, we gave the tip. That, that's a lot of money. And it's a little bit of money for a woman in 1997 raising a, a family. And then he said his mother had a stroke and was divorced and had four kids and wasn't living out a whole lot of money. And he cares about women and children, and he'd like to set up a program that uh, help them. And I said, damn, you know, the guy's got a heart. Hmm. What year was that? 1997. 1997. Yeah. In terms of understanding what he needed to do and where he needed to go, his heart was bigger than his uh, understanding. But you know, with all that bravado and toughness and salesmanship, underneath it all was a real caring human being. And I could connect to that in a minute. Yeah, yeah, I, I see that in him too. Uh, you know, we pick on each other, but he is a caring human being in his way. Hey, hey don't y'all white guys mess up the black guy reputation. I already got enough issues anyway. Don't y'all mess up my rep now because I have a street cred out there. So he started crying like a big baby. <laughs> and I got these napkins out for him. And then I rocked him and I hugged him. And I said, yes, I'll work with you, <laughs> Reverend to be. <laughs> he wasn't even a reverend. He wasn't even a reverend. No, no. Just a regular guy. He was moving from the hucksterism of salesmanship into kind of paying for all of his past sins in his life. And uh, believe it or not, he's 
done a darn good job at it. I, res- <laughs> I, I love him and I respect at times I hate him, but I really respect <laughs> what he's he's done. Yeah. Because this is a guy that when he puts his mind to something, it's gonna get done. Yeah. yeah. Just don't be in the way. Yeah. 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 So one thing led to another, and Bishop Brooks was not playing any games with him and said, Hey. I'll, I'll support you for a year, and then you got to get the money to make this thing take off. Well, Odell knew how to sell things. We didn't know how to do any grants. He didn't know how to develop a program. Didn't do. And then all of a sudden, I became a better friend. You were the grant writer? <laughs> uh, yes, although other people try to take credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I didn't really want credit for any of this stuff. I was already getting a paycheck from the university. Uh and so you're supposed to do community work. And I was doing community work, so I was really thrilled about being involved. Now, let me back up for one second. We spent a lot of time at the church. But, you know, we started out with this race stuff and black popsicles and fudgicles and all that sort of stuff. Well, Odell said to me before we went into church, he said, don't you speak until spoken to by me or anybody else. Now, I understood the philosophy of it because, you know, from the outside, you know, it's a black church and there's a whole bunch of people there. And of course, they're going to be nice to you and things like that. Um, On the other hand, big organizations are big organizations. There'd be some scuttlebutt. Hey, what's this white guy doing hanging around? Is he spying? Is he doing this, doing that? Listen to him, jibber jabber. And so it took me two years before I actually would greet people and meet them and say hello to them because I became like uh, your cigar um, poster over there. I just became part of the environment. And then by fourth year, I would sign in at the church as Sean Connery because I do look a little bit. You do. Actually, you're better looking. I've said that for years and nobody's believed it. (laughs) (laughs) So... From that point on, we were off and running. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a goal in grant writing. It's hard at AAT or UNCG, but if you were at Stanford or in your case, Case Western, these, these well-known places, they the goal is that you want the organizations to come to you. You don't want to go. The fun, you don't want to go and beg and beg and beg and beg. And so... I kept telling Odell that we're going to get good enough that they're going to want to come and give money to us. And in some of the papers that I gave you, we've got letters saying we got X amount of dollars. Come and get it. We got good because we were both athletes. I was a baseball player in college. And he was a um, basketball player in college. And and believe it or not, being a little guy, I was a good hitter. What position you play? I played First base at the end of the game because I was a little. Okay. But I was kind of coachy. So the coach didn't have to make a trip to the mound at the end of the game. <laughs> so I could go. He'd just yeah. he'd send you over. He'd send me over. And I played the outfield uh, usually during the beginning of the game. But that wasn't my role. My role was I was number two hitter and I'd move people up and I could bunt and I could make contact. I never struck out. No, oh, that's fantastic. Except when the ump was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, we were both athletes, and you don't get good without your 10,000 hours to start. That's your baseline. Amen. Amen. And 
I tried to get oh look at this guy. Now <laughs> yeah. he put in ten million hours. Yeah, we're, we're, I just pointed to the jersey of uh, Michael Jordan that we have in the studio. So we both had the basis for what we wanted to do, and we both had the spiritual piece of what we wanted to do, and that was that we really cared. We wanted to get people off while we want to get them to work. He had the business sense and the I'm Odell Cleveland, and let's take a risk. And so we would start to bring in businesses into our welfare reform training. And they come in, sometimes they stay, but we got connected to the business community. And uh, from that point on, we started to get a reputation that even in the recessions, people needed people to work. And they'd come and ask, could you train our people for it? And sometimes we'd bring our people, our trainers onto the job and we'd do little things. Okay, well, you keep our person, we'll take care of their pay for first six weeks. And so those are his ideas. And, you know, he didn't know much about welfare, but boy, he knew about business. And then eventually he became an expert in welfare. And, and, and I don't mean handing out checks, but the training and the service delivery and the troubles that people that go through in welfare. Then he became an expert. And uh, once we got mature and complicated, I no longer could volunteer. They needed a full-time planner. And as Odell would say, the hand of the Lord reached in and sent us Fred Newman. Uh, Fred Newman, he he worked with us at the Boy Scouts. Yeah, well, we brought him in. You know, he was at United Way for a long time. That's why we we, yeah. we brought, we said, we, well, cause we went for money with Fred and uh, other things with Fred. We knew that Fred was a visionary of being kind. And, and I don't, Smart guy. don't say that in a mean way. There are very few people that are visionaries of the in-between lines of the dollars and cents yeah. that go yeah. on in organizations. Yeah, he's. And so we got Fred Newman and, then money started flowing, everything started working, and away we ran. And what was the goal of welfare reform? Was it to get people off welfare? Was it to educate people? What was, what was the goal? It was to educate the community that the people that we brought in to train were, there was a lot more to them if you just gave the time and energy and put it into them. So they had the gifts and the talents. They just needed to be mined. And were they were these folks on welfare that you picked up? Some were. Some weren't. Some gained the system. The ones that gained the system, we got rid of. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not a black, white, red, yellow thing. No. If you're not there to play by our game rules, you sit the bench. And, that, and those rules get out of the, the, the services because we're going to get you to work. Yeah, you're going to help them out. You know, Ishmael, good friend, Henson good friend of Odell and our, he went through the program and now he's a millionaire doing some phenomenal stuff. And uh, we're going to get him on the show. Right, Odell? Yes, no, Bob no ish. Well, Bob no ish yeah. way before you, Bill. So when you said good friend of Odell and Bill's, Bob just smiled because Bob has all kinds of Ishmael stories and he may share some with us, but yeah, Ish is doing very well. And we are, he travels around the world now and we're lucky to get him on the show because that's the potential black male that would have been a statistics in a lot of people's minds. In Katrina, Rabbi Andy, who was head of the education for the kids at the temple, wanted to document what was going on because he was going to do a, a service project. 
And I said, well, I got the person for you. And through Odell, because I didn't make decisions at Welfare Reform Liaison Project, he connected up and Ish traveled with the Jewish kids to um, Katrina and filmed their whole service project. Wow. And he came back and the first thing he said to me, he goes, Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know what that was before. He didn't know what that was before. <laughs> so, um, and then years later, when I was giving a presentation out at the uh, University of California, Southern California, Ish was in Los Angeles. And I called him up and I said, can we have breakfast? And uh, he was just, just moving out of internship in the company that he's now star and yeah he was he was like a high school class president when he, walking in for breakfast hey ish hey ish i said oh man he's got it he's got, he's got it. it but now maybe this won't sound right to the right to the wrong people you know because jews own the world but <laughs> the um but there's only 15 million of you how can you do that good logic <laughs> uh, so oh my goodness <laughs> But the, the owner was Jewish, and I'm sure the Shabbat Shalom helped that, <laughs> that ish. But uh, the best part of the whole thing was I went to pay for breakfast, and he got insulted. Oh, he said, no, and he, he called me Dr. Wine or Dr. No, Dr. Weinberg, I'm paying. And a, it was a big deal for him. I got chills. Yeah, that's a big deal for him. I got chills. No, I love ish. Yeah. But he was the type of person we had a saying people would come into welfare reform is dandelions and our goal was to get them to leave as sunflowers wow so <clears throat> ish left as a sunflower probably the best example but there are plenty others that started their own businesses and um made good how many people do you think welfare reform impacted over the years or just, a, just a, i know you don't have the exact number thousands Really? Thousands on a lot of different ways because we had the warehouse and churches could come and do their volunteer service in separating all the goods. We would get millions of dollars worth of goods from Walmart and from Men's Warehouse and they'd come in, but they were unseparated. A lot of it was unseparated. And the, the best mitzvah, as, as the Jews would call it, good deed, was taping up the diaper packages and to distribute for um, poor women with young children because diapers were so damn expensive. And uh, churches would come in and do that because we would get boxes and boxes and boxes of ripped diapers because, you know, once the package is broken, you can't sell it. Well, you could, but uh, there's more money. You get, you get the, Face value of it if you distribute it to a nonprofit. Non-profit. Yeah, non The concept, folks, and again, correct me, Odell and Bob, if I've got this wrong, uh, was that consumer packaged goods companies, which I worked for, when you had a product sold to Walmart or Walgreens or Kroger or Harris Teeter, if your product didn't sell, they would give you three options destroy it, send it back, or donate it. And none of us ever wanted it back because uh, we had to pay the freight coming back and destroy it, they would give us a fee. But if they donated it, we would get the tax rate. So we said donate it. So they would donate it to welfare reform and they would take it and refurbish it and give it away, kind of like a goodwill, if you will. But uh, 
They also, did you guys sell some of those products to like Family Dollar, Dollar General? Not that I know. We didn't sell anything. Yeah. Well, Bill, the for the audience, um, in those days, Odell was young and ready to take on the world. Well, I came out of the transportation industry. That's who would pay for the lunches when me and Bob would have those expensive lunches. But also, Walmart was the biggest distributor everywhere. So I was used to truckloads of stuff. So I would jump on a plane and fly to Bentonville, Arkansas to meet with Walmart's corporate headquarters and go in there and sell them on the idea of them donating truckloads, 40, 50 truckloads of diapers, paper towels, toilet tissue, clothes, or anything that was returned. And they would get a full uh, write-off via the United Ways for this um, welfare reform program. Just imagine this good-looking black guy walking in there with ostrich skin attic case at the time, Baptist preacher saying, hey, Walmart. And you know, when you go into Bentonville, Arkansas, it ain't too many black people in Bentonville. It's more cows in Bentonville in those days than black people. But with God on our side, we were able to pull it off. We had good planning, Doctor. thanks to Dr. Weinberg, and we closed the deal. So we used to get truckloads of stuff coming from all over the country. All the Walmart distribution centers would send us all those returns. You know, when you go into a Walmart and stick your finger through a pack of toilet tissue, well, they can't sell that. So they get it and ship it to us. We had all kinds of stuff, and we were able to bless so many people and it was just amazing. You know, that whole program just took off. And to Bob's point, uh, over $100 million. I mean, we were giving stuff to people all in the community to help so many families. And even to this day, people come up and said, you just don't know how you helped me. You remember when parents get frustrated because babies are having diarrhea or something and they shaking the babies? Well, because those diapers cost. And Bob and Dr. Weinberg was head of the social work department at UNCG. So we had social work interns coming over and he invited me to come and we would teach classes together. And we even wrote a book together, you know, Pracademics and Community Change. And one of the best honors I ever had was sitting in there with Dr. Bob Weinberg teaching PhD candidates with our book. You know, I mean, it was just amazing. And believe it or not, the agency is still going all these years later. Because one of the things Dr. Weinberg taught me is that they, you could tell a leader not by how one comes, but how one goes and what they leave behind. You know, so when we talk about that and we talk about the academy and a lot of our listeners will say, what goes on those liberal arts academies, them liberal people, yada, yada, yada. And, and I asked Dr. Weinberg in, at the university, what are you teaching folks at the university, doctor? Well, let's start with the nursing school. They learned how to stay strong in a pandemic and work extra hours and work their tail off. But people on the outside would say, you know, those liberal academics that just put a blanket over the whole university, never thinking about the nurses. The practical. Or the business school that puts people in the thousands of uh, businesses in this region and the community and those that climb out go other places. That's the liberal university, you know, making all this noise about wokeism, you know, banning a book in Tennessee. What is that? That's cancel culture. Uh, and who are the people doing it? They're really woke about, you know, this book's going to hurt my kids, so we're going to cancel it. So, you know, there's people on the outside that don't understand, like, 
was was I spouting any revolution when we were down there doing program plans for uh, how we were going to get this grant and who we needed to call and who we needed to connect with or what community event? Was I talking about the revolution? No, we were talking about getting people, majority black people, off of welfare. Because I remember I would go into some of these very, very conservative white Republican guys who said, Odell, I don't want to talk about giving people the welfare. I'm like, I don't want to talk about that either. They said, well, I don't like people on welfare. I said, I don't like people on welfare either. So that's the whole common ground thing. We were working on getting people off of welfare, turning them into taxpayers. And we documented in those days how many, uh, it wasn't millions that time. I think at that time it was close to three or $400,000. We can document that they were paying in taxes and earning because we had a yearly event where if you brought your pay stop back or social security back and we could document, we gave you X amount of quote unquote gift certificates to shop in the distribution center for free. So we just, everything, so the proof was there and nothing changed some of the strongest conservative Republican uh, hearts that I dealt with who supported us when I gave them the receipts, like the young people say, the data. Dr. Weinberg taught me about data. He talked to me about if, if you can't count it, it doesn't count. So I'm a product of Dr. Weinberg's class and people with money and others want to see the data. What difference did it make? How are you going to give me a return on investment? So no, you didn't teach revolution, sir. You taught a hand up, not a handout. Maybe that's revolutionary. Maybe that's revolutionary to the people who want to keep poor black people poor and, and keep them in the system. Maybe that's revolutionary. Look, if people want to confirm their bias, so they want to believe that, you know, all of the people in the university think that everybody that's not Democrat is deplorable. And so you box up the English department or the women's studies department, which makes up a, a speckle of what goes on in the university, a speckle. It's, it, you could put it under a magnifying glass and it, it wouldn't make who is graduating and where they're landing in jobs. And that becomes the entire university. And it's hard to wrestle and beat that narrative to the ground. Now, there's clearly a lot of baloney that goes on in a place that, you know, starts out with eight or 9,000 people when I got there and there's 20,000 people not there and a lot of vice chancellors of what I used to call peanut butter and jelly because, you know, they come into a bureaucracy. They don't. Well, well they, wait a minute. Vice chancellor of peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. Cause I couldn't figure out what they were doing. So <laughs> <laughs> peanut butter and jelly sandwich is pretty common. Yeah. <laughs> so they were all there, but, but, Believe me, if you don't live there, I lived in the sewer lines for 39 years. And you wanted to know black women who were the most important to me? The housekeepers. Mm. Wow. The housekeepers the in housekeepers. the whole university. What? Why do you all say that? All those degrees and people dressing up in those costumes called gowns and parade and don, 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 all that stuff. You said the most important black people on a university campus is not the PhDs, but the housekeepers. You have right. to explain that to our audience, please. I won a raffle in the school and I could have the breakfast of my choice. And I said, I chose to feed the housekeeping people because they get in there early and they clean our toilets and nobody respects them. They walk by them very nice and they do an important job of keeping our place 
unchaotic. There's papers all over the place. The floors are dirty. And nobody respects that. And I did it. I came from a family where, you know, the only difference between a rich man and a poor man is the rich man has a new suit. Otherwise, we're basically human beings. My mother used to say, I wish we were all turned inside and out. And I, I, I bought that for a bunch of years. And then we, I thought, you know, maybe we'll start arguing about your lungs bigger than my lungs. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, you don't want to go there. I didn't want to go there. But the, but the point is that, you know, underneath it all, we're human beings. And, and from king to pauper, we got to try our best to respect everybody that comes through the door. And we don't respect. Well, you know, you've got a point there because, you know, the cleaning people, the janitors, the people that, that uh, you know, keep, like you said, the bathrooms and pick up all the stuff that we just walk by, um, they are underappreciated. You know, it, it, how often do you say thank you or good morning to them or acknowledge that they're there? They're kind of like going to the wall and you don't see them. Just as a sidebar, I went to, you know, I'm, a, I'm the oldest of eight and my dad was a fireman, so we had no money. Uh, so if I wanted to go to college, I had to at work. So I worked three jobs while I went to college and went to school at night. And it took me five and a half years, but I got through it. Uh, but uh, one of the things I did, I was a janitor. I was a janitor in high school. I was a janitor and cleaned the toilets at, uh, at a grocery store. I would get in there at six o'clock in the morning and clean all the toilets, clean the place. They had a machine. I was so excited I could run a machine. That was a big shot. <laughs> Until I, one day I was... I was out partying a little bit too much the night before. So I was a little feeling uncomfortable and I wasn't paying attention. And I, this machine got away from me and it hit a full display of honey. <laughs> and I think about 40 jars just exploded. And I'll tell you what, we had honey oozing out of that corner of the store for about six months. Uh, but, you know, I, but I never thought of anything like it. It was a job to do. Uh, but looking back, you know, I was a janitor. I was a house cleaner. But there's a lot of people at the university that that's their career and they're in there day in, day yes. out. That's right. You know, administrators come and go, but faculty and housekeepers don't. Mm. Uh, and students, too. They yes. come and they would, yeah, absolutely. You know, you know them for years. And, and uh, they, they were important people to me. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Um, do we have time for a story? Yeah. yeah, we do. We're getting near the end, but let's go ahead and do a story. And then we always ask you, what, how do you find common ground? So, after you finish your story, we'll, we'll ask you that question. Well, one of our administrators figured out that the best way to deal with the housekeepers is to have them uh, become contract employees. And the way they were going to do it is to take the, they started at six o'clock in the morning when the first bus arrived at the university. And so they changed the hours that they had to be there at 5.30. And so there were a whole group of women on my floor and throughout the university, near black women, who now are getting demerits in their state system where they got no demerits ever in their working because they were showing up late because they had jerry-rig rides. And, and oh, yeah. Like they, they took a city bus, right? So there was no union. So I, I went after the chancellor. And I went after the chancellor like you wouldn't believe. I just thought that was the most 
But that was the ugliest thing that you could do to such loyal people that do so. Well, they thought I was crazy. And, and that started my reputation in 1981, 82, as a madman at the university. I was, I was a madman. You'd be mad too if your friends got ripped off like that. Amen. And uh, so long story short, but I wouldn't get off of his juggler thing for nine months. Emails. Every time I saw him, not email. There were no emails in 1981, just letters to him. And nine months later, one of the women walked into my office, said, we got our jobs back, full pay, back pay. Wow. And then uh, I got a good reputation amongst certain people in the university, never with the administrator. Oh, no. You were, you were trouble. But the real people I did. Yeah. So. Uh, so that's that's how that, that's is that is that your your style? Yes. Glad to hear. That I'm, glad to hear. I'm glad to hear. Yeah, I think we're going to get along fine. Well, I know one thing for sure. We both smoke cigars and you like brandy and I like bourbon. So they both begin with a B. So we should be OK. Yeah. And Odell likes wine on occasion, especially with a fancy restaurant in Palo <laughs> Alto. Yeah. I never thought uh, Bill, Bill. Bill, we went, oh man, Paul, you're absolutely right. We went to Stanford because Bob has a brother, younger brother, who's an acclaimed professor at Stanford University. I think it's in history, uh, education, Dr. Weinberg. Both, both. Okay. We went out there on a business trip and we took some time to kind of uh, share. And we went over to Stanford and then they took us out to this fancy restaurant in Palo Alto. And I went to the restaurant, Bill, and I would ask you, what do you think I ordered? And you would say fried chicken being you, but I didn't <laughs> order fried chicken, Bill. I ordered rabbits there. I oh mean, the fanciest, oh the fanciest place is not as fancy as the place. Hey, hey let me ask you, did it taste like now. chicken? Did it taste like chicken? Uh, rabbit, everything tastes like chicken when you're a black man from the South, Bill. You know better than that. You know that. But as, as, um, it was just amazing. And I was in uh, I was in Stanford trying to sell the idea of getting container loads of documentation from over in Korea. Instead of shipping it to Korea, they could ship it to Greensboro so we could scan it and do some stuff there. So I was always trying to sell the idea because we got a lot of people jobs with scanning documentation getting it ready because those were the days when electronic medical records and stuff like that was just coming about. So we did some very innovative things. I thank God for that experience. I uh, love Dr. Weinberg. He's been a mentor and a friend for years. And to his point, sometimes I get on his nerves. Sometimes he gets on my nerve. But it's the same thing, Bill. Sounds the thing like about marriage. common ground. When wait, you wait, wait, find wait, 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 quick, quick, quick. What about the wine? For years, you said you didn't drink. So my brother said, should we get a bottle of wine? I said, no, Odell doesn't drink. He says, oh, wait a minute. I do <laughs> I, we got I a bottle of wine. wine. I, I drink closet. not a bottle, but I do drink wine on occasions because any good Christian know that Jesus turned water into wine. So since Jesus was Jewish and he turned water into wine, I'm thinking I'm good either way. Got it covered, huh? Well, Bob, you've been a delight, and we really, I enjoyed meeting you for the first time, and I look forward to this to continue. Uh, the, uh, where do you find Common Ground? In kindness. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Look, there's very few things that human beings like, and one is a smile. Mm -hmm. That 
there's no language to a smile. It's its own language. So I find common ground in trying to be light with people. And everyone likes to be treated nicely. You know, I try to find common ground by even treating people I don't like nicely. Great way to end the show. Bob, thank you for being a guest. We will have you back again. Uh, and I think this time maybe we'll have a brandy and a bourbon while we do the show. Oh, Lord have mercy in, on in, all in of us. After, we'll do it later in the day, though. Because if I did it this early, I'd be taking a nap after. Or we could pretend we're in college and do it in the morning. <laughs> For breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Find Bill and Odell online at thecommonground.show. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Darren Sutherland, Executive Producer. Jeremy Powell, Creative Director. Jacob Sutherland, Director. All rights reserved. Whether you're a big, medium, or small business, managing and growing the bottom line is important. Focus CFO brings the experience and financial acumen of a Fortune 100 Chief Financial Officer to your company at a fraction of the cost. PL help, internal reporting processes, or any business transitions or events, Focus CFO will help you and your team have a CFO in your company's back pocket. Focus CFO. Learn more at focuscfo.com. This podcast is brought to you by Yes Weekly, the triad's largest circulated and best read weekly magazine. You can also find us online at yesweekly.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes Weekly, your trusted news leader for local arts, entertainment, music, food, and more for nearly 18 years.